Thank you. Yeah, that last bit's not terribly helpful when it comes to audio, but um, I, was I was a bit quiet yesterday, so if I'm too quiet, then can you holler at me? Holler loudly, and I will try to be louder. Okay, so how to make your listener levitate. And um, I want to start just by playing a little clip from a program that actually won the gold at Third Coast in 2004. Um, it's a program... Um, which was made by a man called Nigel Atchison and um, Kim Normanton, and it's called She's Alright, My Mum Is, and it's a programme about young carers, or as I understand they're called in the States, young caregivers. And um, where we come into it in this tiny clip is um, a girl called Stacy, whose mum has Huntington's disease, and... We've sort of heard a lot about how difficult her life is. And um, there's just this tiny, beautiful moment midway through the programme where this happens, assuming the PowerPoint works. Trying to make some sense of it all But I can see that makes no sense at all is it cool to go to sleep on the floor? I don't think that I can take any more. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. If I start getting tempered or in a bit of a mood, I'll come up to my room and I'll sit and listen to my music. I do get angry, but not as often as you'd expect. I try and not let anyone get her depressed because the depression makes Huntington's disease worse. If, like, I came back from school one day and something had happened and she was depressed, then we'd have to try our best to cheer her up by, like, singing, dancing, anything that would make her laugh. Um, so I just love the kind of the intimacy of that and the elegance of that and um, just the fact that this 15-year-old girl, you know, whose job is basically to look after her mum, keep her mum happy, and we hear her singing. And it's a programme made, as I said, by Nigel Atchison. I never got to meet him. I think a few people here um, will have known him, Alan Hall at the back. Um, from all accounts, he was a lovely, kind, um, deeply cultured man and a wonderful radio producer. He won Peabody's, he won so and Sony's, as well as the award here. So why am I talking about Nigel Atchison, apart from the fact... As a radio producer, we would all like to be remembered somehow. Um, I want to read an extract from an obituary that was written for him by... Um, is that someone putting a hand up? No. Um, obituary was written for him by another British radio producer called Matt Thompson. His programmes had a peculiar magic. At first, there was nothing except riveting storytelling. Then, without knowing quite how it was done, the listener would realise, to their surprise... The programme was floating about a foot above the ground. Um, now, I heard that for the first time about six years ago, and it's lived quietly in my head ever since. It kind of glows away as, um, as what I would aspire to. If you know, I just think that's an incredible way to have your life's work remembered. Um, I, lo I like a lot of things about that as a statement of intent, one of them is I really like the fact that riveting storytelling is where you start. It's not where you stop. Riveting storytelling is the bit we get out of the way. You know, we can all do that. Um, and um, so I like that very much. And I also like very much the fact that we measure the effect of the programme by what happens to the listener. It's not by the brilliance of the questions. It's not by the cleverness of the edits. It's what happens to the listener during that experience. 
So it's not just immersion, um, although it is immersion. It's not just absorption, although it is absorption. It's, um, it's something subtler and weirder. It's um, something transformative. It's something, um, it's the world turned luminous, the world turned profound. Uh, and I've always linked that idea of audio as a magic carpet uh, with one of my other creative touchstones, which is a quote by the American writer George Saunders. And he's talking about the creative lessons that he learned from Kurt Vonnegut. I began to understand art as a kind of black box the reader enters. He enters in one state of mind and exits in another. The writer gets no points just because what's inside the box bears some linear resemblance to real life. He can put whatever he likes in there. What's important is that something undeniable and non-trivial happens to the reader between entry and exit. So for me, that's what it's all about. It's about creating an experience that is undeniable and non-trivial. You know, otherwise, what are we doing? If we're just there to let somebody, help someone go to sleep, if we're just there to kill five minutes, fair enough. But I, I would rather attempt somehow to make something that might transform just a few people, just a little bit. I don't have big, big aspirations, but just a tiny bit. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk, try and talk about today, audio that has that kind of effect on the listener, how we make audio that transports and transforms. Um, and just one last waiver, I'm not making any claims for my own work. Um, I'm just, these are the things I'm thinking about and um, I would really like to know what you think about them as well because, you know, it's a process of figuring out. It's, it is magic, essentially, so, in, you know, it's this ridiculous process of attempting to pull the wings off the butterfly and say how it works. So, with all those caveats, six things I worry about um, when making audio that may induce levitation in a listener. Number one, create a vivid world. Um, so when I make a piece, um, I want the world I'm imagining to be so engaging that the listener wants to move there, that um, they forget about their phone, that they forget about their email, they forget about the contents of the fridge. Um, I want to create an atmosphere that is as tangible and intense as a Dickensian fog and that will be sustained from beginning until end. That's, that's the aim. Um, the writer Eudora Welty has um, a wonderful phrase to describe how she writes. She talks about um, the beautiful, sober accretion of a sentence. And I love that idea, that sort of, that sense of the creative process as a plod. We, we add, we add, we add, and somehow we end up with something magical. And I think when I'm making a scene, I think what I do is I add, it's a beautiful, sober accretion of detail. Little details of sound in particular, um, but also little details in the scripting. Um, and mostly I learned that, I think, from Ernest Hemingway. Actually, sorry, I'm getting my PowerPoint out of order. I take copious notes, that's the other thing. So when I'm away, I just, I scribble everything. I come back with enormous notebooks just full of so many details about the place I've been to. And Hemingway says, um, if we get into a fish, see it exactly what it is that everyone does. If you get a kick out of it while he's jumping, remember back until you see exactly what the action was that gave you that emotion whether it was the rising of the line from the water and the way it tightened like a fiddle string until drops started from it, or the way he smashed and threw water when he jumped. Find what gave you the emotion, what the action was that gave you the excitement, then write it down, making it clear so the reader will see it too and have the same feeling you had. And Hemingway calls that a five-finger exercise for a writer, and I think it's a five-finger exercise for an audio producer. Um, so look for the emotional details that create a moment. Um, so I want to play a little clip from a programme I've just finished. Um, and I have just finished, so it's sort of cringingly fresh. So I'm still sort of thinking about all the things I could have done differently. But I think it's got a lot of, li a lot of these little details in it. Um, and it's about reindeer racing in the very far north of Finland. 
What's it called? Snoosku. 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 Yeah. It's what like does Snoosku mean? A sniff. Yeah, sniff. <laughs> yeah. Our reindeer is called sniff. Yes. If you want, he goes forward and fast. You can swing the rope. Go, go, go. Hop, hop. And if he goes well, you just hang the rope on your hand. Yeah. Not too tight, because then he thinks that you're gonna slow down. I'm driving a sledge through a dark forest at night with the help of Sniff the reindeer. It's minus 20 and I'm wrapped up in a coat as thick as a duvet. The path's narrow and as I drive along it, I brush past trees covered in tukalomi, tree snow. And at the end of the track, a reward for hungry reindeer, dried green lichen. So this is like a chocolate for the reindeer. Very, very delicious. And they can smell this under one meter snow. It's not a strong smell. No, but it's nice, isn't it? Yes. It's very fresh. Nom, 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 nom. It's got a very frosty nose. Yeah. <laughs> Antti Lakella, part-time reindeer herder, part-time tour guide, all-time nice bloke. The fur is so soft. Yeah. Yes, it is. We've stopped in a silent clearing in the nighttime forest. Never seen the stars so clearly. Yeah, there is big bear. The big bear, yeah. yeah. And as you can see, there's not so dark at all. It's no, it's not so dark. Because the snow, snow gives a lot of light. Do the reindeers behave differently when it snows? When it's very cold, very cold, minus 40. And then it's, uh, the weather changes and uh, starts to wind from the south and comes uh, more warmer air. Then these reindeers, they're going very happy. So they run around that fence. So a happy reindeer runs? Yeah, and they jump like a small rabbit. <laughs> do you talk to your reindeers? Yeah, sometimes. Do they ever talk back? Sometimes they're doing like... <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> I think everyone should uh, spend a short time with yeah. these reindeers. Yeah. Here in the between the silence. Yeah, I like the big winter silence a lot, actually. Yes. To have this in your soul. Yeah. To have this as the base of who you are. Yeah. It's a really strong foundation, isn't it? It's yes, and it's very, very personal. Very personal. Personal right? feeling and. Yeah. What that it's yours in yes. a way. Toes are starting to get chilly, so we head back inside. Antsy boils a kettle over the fire, and we drink hot blueberry juice and eat cinnamon rolls. So if, uh, it was very hard making that because I wanted to make something that somehow captured the magic of this experience that was really bloody freezing and yet it was intensely cosy. And um, I think in retrospect it comes through. It's things like um, it's the reindeer bells, it's the frosty nose on the reindeer, it's um, the sound of boots on wood over ice. But it's sort of that myriad of details that makes one world. Um, Sometimes when I'm making a scene, I, um, I'll get to this point where I've sort of made something and it's perfectly workmanlike and it's perfectly serviceable, but it's missing something. And I realise that I've, I've built a house, but I haven't actually moved into it. That um, I'm somehow I haven't given it that sort of uncanny animation that it requires, that it hasn't got a little bit of my soul in it. Um, and at this point, I asked Sarah Geist to read my script and she gave me a note. I know there's no recipe for this, nor do we want to bash the magic with a hammer, 
but I think it would be useful to say how you personally go about attempting this after you've built something workmanlike or serviceable. What is it that you do to imbue your work with intensity? Um, so for an imaginary world to have that kind of intense, uncanny life of its own that I'm talking about, I can't just think it into being. I have to see it, I have to walk in it, I have to feel it, I have to smell it. Um, I have to reconnect with all the emotions I had when I made it. When I, sorry, when I was recording. Um, and the way I do that is, uh, is I shut everything else out and this becomes my world. Um, so I feel quite naked actually exposing this, so this is my desk. Um, but essentially, um, I get up early, I don't put the radio on, um, I don't check my email, sometimes I don't get out of my pyjamas, I don't open the curtains, put my phone on silent, um, I use an app to block my email, um, and I will carry on like that for two or three days at a time, um, because actually I have to kind of live in, live in the atmosphere. And I will carry on until either I'm completely stuck and I need someone else to get me out of my head, or until it's done. Um, and I've heard there are some people who go out when they're making things, and they actually go out in the evening and have lives, but I have no idea how you do that. Um, so this clearly makes me a tragic geek. Um, but at the same time, I think there is something in it. You know, it's a worthy foe. And if we're going to make worlds that we want people to live in, then actually maybe we need to live in them first. Okay, number two, give the listener something to do. So when you pitch up in a new place, um, there are different ways of handling it. One, you can kind of plunge out of the hotel with a map and see what happens. Two, you can find a guide and they can contextualise this new world for you. And both work, but they're very, very different experiences. Audio, and particularly the audio documentary, lends itself to the latter approach. Um, it's got a huge potential for didacticism. The single voice that tells us a story, that gives us a lesson, that gives us a speech. You know, that works so beautifully. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't, wouldn't we make the most of that? But I think uh, the problem is that that's such an obvious thing to do that we often forget the fact uh, that sometimes being presented with a mystery uh, is really absorbing. You know, sometimes we're so concerned with signposting, we're so concerned with telling, um, that we forget that actually it's really nice not to know what the hell's going on. Uh, so I want to be a tiny bit of theory, but I'm going to do it and then disappear from it again, so it won't go on too long. There's a German theorist, Wolfgang Eisser, and um, he has this really beautiful idea about books. Um, he says that if you imagine, you look at the night sky, and all the information that the author gives you, um, think of that as the stars. And all the work that you do as a reader the effort, you, you know, the way that you join those stars together, that's the dark space. Um, and he sort of, he maps it onto, you know, you take a 19th century novel, lots of telling, lots of explanation, that's a, that's a, a whole panoply of stars. Um, you take a 20th century novel, who knows what the hell is going on, that's, you know, lots of dark space. So it's a continuum, uh, clarity and mystery, and we need somewhere in the middle. The most obvious form of narrative mystery is detective work, why serial works, obviously. Um, but there are other mysteries, the mystery of an unusual structure that doesn't just plod through the story chronologically, um, of piecing together a circular story or one told in reverse, the mystery of a piece of music that says one thing uh, juxtaposed with an interviewee who says another, and one of my favourites, the mystery of starting a story in the middle. When you first go into a cloud, you don't really feel it particularly, but if you spend a few minutes in there, it is damp and your, all your kit starts to get a bit wet and you, know, you can have water starting to run down the lines a little bit. And if you go higher and higher, then things can start freezing up as well. You get completely wrapped in the greyness, the moisture of the cloud, and you're, you have an altimeter that's bleeping and it's taking you up, and you think, oh my God, it's going to take me up and up and up and up forever. Please close your eyes. Hold on to I am. 
and watch your breathing. There's a nervousness. Your brain can't help but think, will I ever come out of this cloud? And then after a while, you'll pop out the edge and you'll be a thousand or two thousand feet above the bottom of the cloud. And it's like this cliff of the purest white. And if you come out on the sunny side of the cloud, suddenly this blast of sun comes into your face. And that, I must have done that 50 or 100 times, but it's still the most exhilarating thing I think that ever happens in my life. see the earth, you can't see anything else, everything's just blue and you're just hanging there under a, under a bit of cloth and string. if you could <laughs> would I live up there no I, I think you need the balance I think you need the contrast I think you always got to come down at some point And so they put three people in a two-man cell. And you get a little television and a kettle. Double bunk there, a single bed there, toilet there, wash hand basin there, a cell window in front of you. Uh, the view, well, basically, you look, well, it depends which, which, which wing you're on. But our view was over the exercise yard to beyond that tower block in the distance. So it's the same? Oh, it doesn't change, apart from the weather. So how big is the window, roughly? It's not big. And, you know, they come in every now and again to test the bars. Make sure you're not chipping them out. <laughs> I tell you what is nice about it, seeing birds, all right, they're only pigeons, but seeing them fly, <laughs> they're free. I was getting a wee bit, I'd like to get out of here now. <laughs> but I just love the fact that they all go, it's my bit. <laughs> you stay up, I, this is my bit, my bit of the sky. Robins, tough little bastards there. The Arena Chapel, Padua, 1305-ish. Giotto perches on a ladder, scratches his nose with a painty finger and adds a dab of blue to the ultramarine sky that curves over his head, winks at the tiny pink-clothed angel who flies on the wall alongside. 600 or so years later, Marcel Proust visits. The frescoes are so blue he thinks the sky outside has snuck into the shady chapel along with him for a breather from the sun. Giotto's flying angels look so real they must exist. He likes the way they loop the loop. Um, so I made that um, with Matt Thompson and Joe Atchison 
Nigel Atchison's nephew, um, for um, between the ears on the BBC, and um, that's how it starts. So there's there's no host, there's no um, lead in, there's no context. You're just presented with a puzzle, and you'll you know figure it out. Um, okay. Number three, add a pinch of strangeness. Um, I went on a date with a guy a couple of weeks ago and we went to a Swedish restaurant and I had meatballs and he had herring and um, he told me some stories about poltergeist that made me sleep with the lights on for a week. Um, but what really interested me was he um, was talking to me about his students. He teaches students sort of late teens, early 20s. And he says when they come to him with stories about their personal life, they will often say, uh, well, you know, it's, it's the bit of the story where... And then they will gloss over this big kind of chunk of their own psychodrama and just, you know, as if it's too boring to talk about. So essentially they've turned, they've turned their emotional life into a story and then decided it's too much of a stock plot to talk about. Um, and I thought that was really interesting for us as storytellers because this is an extraordinary moment. We, storytellers have never, ever had it so hard. A thousand years ago, we could have pitched up to a village, said once upon a time, and been showered with mead and goats. And now, <laughs> and now we have this audience that knows, that knows what we do almost as well as we do. They know what a meat cute is. They know what a reveal is. So how do we defamiliarize the familiar when, you know, they, they're so goddamn familiar with all of it? Um, so one thing I think is uh, you have to interrogate your own cliches. Um, and for me, that goes all the way through the process when I'm being good. Uh, so it's cliches of speech, but it's also cliches of structure, and it's cliches of thought, which are the hardest of the lot to pick up, the really deep, buried cliches that are yours and that you know, will eventually turn you into a parody of yourself if you're not careful. Um, Another way I like to do it, to add a pinch of strangeness, is to monkey with the frame of a story. Uh, so to paraphrase the cultural historian Stephen Connor, why can't documentary makers sing the blues? Uh, we don't always have to tell it straight. Why not a docu-western or uh, a docu-horror? Or um, this uh, from the Berlin-based um, maker Phil Smith, which I thought about it, and I think it's a weird kind of acid trip docu-fairy tale. Once, I got on a plane and I went to the land of enchantment. This is what they call New Mexico. It's written on every vehicle registration plate, so that you know. Everything leads to everything else in the land of enchantment. At the railway station, for example, a man told me to follow the Lalu's trail up the Sandia Mountains, when it splits, take the right-hand fork up to the top, and then get the tramway back. And I felt like asking why he didn't go and follow the Lalu's trail and take the right-hand fork when it splits and the tramway back himself. But he's just being friendly. Anyway, he couldn't. He was headed to Santa Fe to get a Navajo turquoise squash blossom necklace valued. It lay on the bar top between us, wrapped in white cotton swaddling cloth. I went on through the land of enchantment. After a while, I came to an organic farming conference in a big hotel. It was there that I met the fig man of New Mexico. I knew he was the fig man because, pinned to his lapel, he wore a badge that said, I do give a fig. Somebody said, why are you the fig man? And I say, well, the jolly green giant is already taken. Superman is gone. So I became the fig man. You should see my fig leaf. It's quite nice. <laughs> I sat on the floor cross-legged. The fig man stretched out his tree root limbs. The fig is brilliant. The carpet was desert orange, the length of a corridor. The fig is always saying, adjust, accommodate. Remember that your identity is not in your history. It's in your possibility. I looked around for the fig that had said that, for everything speaks in the land of enchantment. I don't think it matters to life whether you fall in love with your shoes or you fall in love with a fig or you fall in love with your girlfriend or you fall in love with all of it. I laid out my legs straight before me, untied laces. 
This is less about figs than I thought. I don't think it matters. Wherever I put my intelligence, that's the school that teaches me about life. When I work with the figs, I enter a figdom. I enter a figdom. It's another realm. It's a, it's a realm of thinking. It's a realm of responding. It's a realm of supporting. They make me. There's a great line from, from a movie where he turns to her and he says, I believe I have a compliment. You, you make, make me want, me want to be a better, be a better man. man, he says. That's Jack Nicholas. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Figs make me want to do everything I can to support them. Well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. <laughs> <laughs> so that was made by Phil Smith, who um, I just, I love what he makes, and because um, he's just doing his own thing, and he takes risks, and half the time he doesn't even know he's doing it. Um, so um, it's worth, please go and find more of his work. Um, number four, have things happen. A lot of what we do when we record is about controlling the unpredictability of life. So we record interviews, usually one at a time, in nicely controlled studio environments. We get speech on a separate mic to the background um, so we can separate the two. We ask our interviewees to turn their phones off. We end up with pristine recordings, which often, because of the nature of what we do, uh, feature people talking about memories and recollections, the past tense being yet another way to tidy up the awkward chaos. But the problem with shutting out all this life is that it can make the audio a bit lifeless. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Where are you? Lake, <laughs> Yukon. <laughs> On an island where I can see mountains and blue stuff. And what's the water like? <laughs> well, it's very clear, but I would have to say a little cold. What are you wearing? Not a stitch. And uh, what's your next move? I'm gonna dunk right in, right in, like dive like a mermaid. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sounds, sound bites, and tidbits we find all over the world. We're sort of like oral archaeologists, unearthing sound from any site we find. The airwaves, the internet, audio festivals, our own Third Coast competition, you name it, we're there listening. Big Brother meets great radio. You <laughs> should do it all at once. You think I should go in this one bit? I don't know. What would you generally do? Jump right in. I'm gonna jump under the void. One. Swimming in Snafu by the Canadian producer um, Megan Perry, and that's how I first heard it about seven or eight years ago, just at the beginning of a resound, and um, and it made me cry, and I don't know why it made me cry. I thought that's a bit odd, and then the next time I heard it, it made me cry, and the time after that, it made me cry, and you know I think that effect has just about worn off after having played it an awful lot, but. There is something about that piece that I absolutely love. To me, it epitomizes that sort of uh, energy and the unpredictability and the potential of life that we spend a lot of time cutting out of our programs. Um, one of the most life-filled programs I've made is called White Stiletto Dreams. And it's a bit about a big open-air street market in Romford, Essex, um, which is a white working class neck of the woods to the east of London. Um, Essex girls get a very bad rap in England um, for being dim and for wearing white stiletto shoes, and I'm allowed to say that because I am one. Um, so I grew up in that area and I went to this market a lot as a teenager, and um, it was intensely alive, and I didn't quite understand what that life was at the time because I was quite young, and actually it was this huge sort of 
innuendo-soaked world where, you know, everybody was yelling and calling out from stalls. It was kind of weirdly medieval. Um, cobbles would be slippy with fried onions and disintegrating cardboard boxes, and you'd kind of shove past people trying to get, get through. So one of the people I interviewed, um, one of the big characters um, back in the 80s when I used to go, was a guy called Trevor. And Trevor had a ladies' shoe stall. And um, he had a really serious reputation as a Casanova as well. Um, and I asked him how he sold shoes. Moon boots. We was the first with moon boots. People didn't know what they were because I wore them that night to the pictures. And they were saying, what's he got on his feet? And I was loving it. So how do you reel them in? The first time I had to serve somebody, I thought, God, no, you go and do it. I said, terrified. And then after that, you get, your confidence builds. There was a kind of... <laughs> there was a kind of pattern, but it wasn't, you know, in stone. It was it's whatever so, suits that person. So you'd kind of tailor it depending on the woman and the feet? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. Lot of lot of flirting going on. Lots, lots. Was that fun? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Lot of, lot of fun. What, what was your best line? With me? Yeah, go on. <laughs> I, think what best line. I don't feel like I'm, I'm not going to buy this pair of shoes. Hey, Tell um, me a pair of white stilettos. Okay. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want you to wear white because that's a stereotype. I'll pick you a nice pair of red shoes. You know? Actually, that's perfect already. Okay, do you want to try it on? <laughs> I would, yeah, red okay. shoes, that would work. Take your shoe off and then I'll bend down. Yeah. Put it on. So then, well, how does it feel? Right, right. this is all very innocent so far, yeah. I'm thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you've got to be. You can't, you can't come full on to people. Then you say, have a little have a walk. walk and so see I, walk, I walk up and down. That's it. Come back, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good, it's good. Yeah. You've got a good pair of legs there. You should, you should wear stilettos more often. You know, and it goes on from there, lots yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It all no, depends yeah. on the person. Yeah. And if I liked them as well. Yeah, and what's coming back? You're very friendly, which is, you know, makes you vulnerable. Why is that? Because it does. <laughs> <laughs> Women usually have a guard right. to protect them. And they, you have to come through that, make them laugh or something before you can start getting through that layer. And obviously looking in the eyes. You know, you don't look away. You look. You, if I look at you, you, you stay looking back. I'm hypnotised, Trevor. <laughs> Rubbish. <laughs> Rubbish. You're like the woman whisperer. <laughs> woman whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> I like a lot of things about that clip, uh, not just the fact that he says I've got nice legs, although that is high on the list. Um, but I like, I like all the background noise. Um, it was recorded outside. We recorded the whole programme in the market, so there was always something going on, and it would interrupt every single thing we recorded, but we just kept recording. Um, but also, I just like the utter unpredictability of that. You know, I could have come up with that question, you know, and I could have recorded him in a studio, and I could have queued it up, and he would have played, and it would have had none of that sort of dangerous, weird, flirty energy to it that it ended up with because I didn't know what was going to happen. This is another interview from the same programme, um, this time with Bill Handley, who was the guy in charge of security for the market. A group of traders employed a private security firm to look after their stores, because they left all their stuff on. And these are big stores. But it turned out that private security firm was doing all the burglaries in the town centre. That's so Romford. <laughs> and, uh, hello, John. All right. Were you ever scared? doing your job yeah if you're not scared then you're not aware and if you're not aware you're going to lose as I found out to my cost in the final fight that I lost as a police officer what happened when you were a police officer uh, I was trying to arrest a guy for murder he decided he wanted to kill me as well we ended up having a hell of a scrap on a derelict site it's uh, one o'clock in the morning one New Year's Eve I ended up bashing him with a brick I ended up with the fractured spine so, yeah, things happen. When were you scared down the market? The day the guy with the knife. I didn't want to get stabbed, I didn't want to die. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't like the sight of blood, especially in my own. Do excuse me. Hello, darling. Get the two and a halves because there'll be less kick on them. All right, OK, love, bye, bye. So right, my daughter's in the gun shop. She doesn't know whether to get the two and a half inch cartridges or the magnum, so... So I'm teaching my grandchildren to shoot. And that's why I actually never ask interviewees to turn their phones off anymore, because just in case. Um, OK, number five, be yourself.
there's no doubt most Radio 3G makers have got incredible egos, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it in the first place. And there's an ego that says, I want to go and tell a story about X and I'm going to make it this way, I'm going to make things happen in the medium. One could compare radio to a play of shadow. We call it in France, uh, jeu de paume. You move your hands, there's a light behind the hands, and you'll see only the shadow. You don't see really the hands. So often the hands of the maker in radio are invisible. Uh, although I believe that very often you can recognize uh, the signature, the style of a good radio maker by his montage. A good radio, no, not even a good radio, a radio feature pretty much sounds like the person's head inside. So I can hear a radio feature by someone and get a sense really of who they are, even if I don't, you know, some radio features are incredibly calm and elegant. And yeah, I know the stuff I make is full of junk. It's full of the bric-a-brac of life. Let's, let's, let's have a scene in a sort of Scandinavian fashion. Do you mind? I've never done much Scandinavian <laughs> radio. What have we got? We've got multiple film posters and bits of Arsenal ephemera and uh, a pile of books everywhere. Um, a monarch butterfly, my granddad's hat, a hawker hurricane, my brother-in-law's sculptures. Um, so your uh, signature is revealed? It's the brain print. People like Mark Berman and others push the boundaries. Um, so uh, that's the Ballad of the Feature Maker, which is a really wonderful um, meta-documentary um, by Alan Hall, and um, you might have recognised him by his montage. Um, and it's uh, available on SoundCloud, so you can go and have a listen to the whole thing, which I strongly recommend. Um, and he's sitting at the back, I think, hiding. Um, so if you want to give your listener that undeniable and non-trivial experience that George Saunders talks about, if you want them to levitate, then you have to begin by giving them something real. Um, a brain print that's as distinctively you as your fingerprints. Or um, I was talking to Tony Phillips um, this week about this idea, and he said maybe it's a heart print. Um, it makes me think of something that I heard Leah Tao say a few years back when somebody asked her how she gets such good interviews. She said, I turn up and I'm real. And if I'm real, sometimes they're real in return. And I actually think that's, that's, that's it for the whole process. If you turn up and be real when you make audio, the listener might just turn up and be real too. And it's when you hook that sort of real deep self of the listener that you have a chance if you don't bugger it up of that transformative moment. I don't think you do that by aping other makers. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't think you do that by aping other makers, which is the danger of how-to events like this, which make it seem as if there's a recipe. You do it by being yourself out loud and seeing what happens. I think another way to say that is you find your voice. And for me, anyway, that's not been a one-time thing. It's not like you just find your voice and then you're done. It's, uh, you know, you find it and then it disappears, and then you find it and it disappears. And it's a sort of a constant process of thinking, well, am I making something that's really me, or have I lost it again? Am I making something that somebody else wants me to make? Um, so that you-ness has to go through every element of the process in the choice of the subject, um, how you respond to your interviewees, how you edit. And that's hard because it means you have to constantly interrogate your thoughts. Um, so do I really think this or do I just think that I think this? And if I do think this, do I actually believe it? Um, so my scripts and my edits tend to be iterative processes in refinement, kind of getting constantly slightly closer to my truth. In other words, we might be magicians, but we have to pull something real out of the hat. And I really do believe that in this heartbreakingly fake, marketing-drenched world, that being yourself out loud is a quietly incendiary and subversive act. Okay, six, be human. Um, at the beginning, when I was talking about levitation, I said that for me it was more than immersion, more than absorption, that it was about the listener experiencing something profound and magical, something undeniable and non-trivial. 
A piece that does that for me is Sylvia Ryerson's Envision, I can never say this right, Envision Yourself Being a Free Man. Um, she works with the family members of prisoners in Virginia to make audio postcards that are then broadcast directly into prisons. Hi, Devon. This is your grandma. You know what you call me. This is Gma, Grandma Essie. Today's date is Sunday, October the 11th, and I'm so blessed that we are on our way to church today, and your mother should be there. And after church, all of us will talk to you. And this is to show you today how much we love you, and we are sending a shout-out to you, making a radio piece specifically for you. You know every Sunday when I go to church, I generally carry you in my Bible, well, I left you in North Carolina this week, that picture that I usually have with me. But I got you in my heart 24-7. And remember what I told you. Regardless of what everybody else do, you keep on keeping a prayer in your heart and spread that to your brothers. Because the more prayer y'all do, the heavier y'all can fight whatever demons may be trying to dance on you. Okay, is you are you ready? All right, we're heading out and we'll do it church at 10 o'clock. <laughs> Going down Staunton Avenue. Most of the neighborhood up and down 10th Street is just about gone. And on our usual plea, we're late. <laughs> we're, we're a few minutes. The clock is a little bit fast, but we're still late. Church supposed to start at 10, so we're going to make it real well. Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, I'm, I'm, mm. I'm Stella Thomas, your grandma's. Buddy and buds, <laughs> but uh, I wish you'd be have a blessed day because I got a brother in law been dead 40 years now for something he didn't do, and they didn't let him out yet. I just hope he come free one day. Man, he ain't there for nothing, though. You know that when you don't have money, that's the way it go. They take advantage of you. When you got money, you know, you pay your way, but when you got no money, yeah, we are we thinking about you this morning. We're going to sing for you. Put your hands together this morning. Hey Devon, this your mom. Just letting you know that um, I'm leaving church and I said a big prayer for you as I always do. On my way to uh, grandma's house and we're going to sit there and we're going to have a feast. And let me tell you, I'm not going to brag about the food because I know you're talking about that great stuff. However, we're going to eat for you, okay? Love you. All right, one, two, one, two. This Pop Dukes here. Hey, son, uh, yeah, we're just leaving church here and just had a good time praising with the Lord. And now we're ready to head on over here and have some good eating, all right? So this part one, and then we're going to have a whole day of adventurous talking and, and just uh, reminiscing and everything. It's going to be a good blessed day, all right? All right, this Pop Duke loving you, man. Signing off. <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> all right. We're just walking out of church, and I'm still talking to you. It's a beautiful day out here. And I'm looking at your brother who's been so patient and enduring for me and your mom. And I'm just loving it. Devon, you remember the time that Lois had gotten a speaker for Father's Day for the Men's Day program and the speaker didn't show and you got up and you did that speech? She still talks about that. You weren't but about 15 years old when you did that one. Oh, did I tell him that was me up there singing? Devon know my voice, I think. <laughs> I don't even remember what the words were that I was singing, but they had me to sing a part of a song. <laughs> We're on our way home now, and we're gonna go over here and see what Uncle Great has done if he's cooked this fish like I told him. Alrighty. So that's just a little clip, and um, the the longer piece is up on the Third Coast website. Um, but I love it. I just I really love it, and the way it goes on, you know, I. We go on from Grandma Essie wondering whether he's cooked the fish right and we go into the house and we hear the fish being cooked and then we sit down around the table with them and they have conversation and Devon's mum plays him a song that she really likes, a pop song, and it's beautifully ordinary 
And the older I get in this very vain and very noisy world, then the more I realise what a deeply important compliment that actually is. When we fall in love, uh, which is one of the other great levitational experiences in life, it's often because the object of our affection surprised us. They say something or they do something that reveals them to be more than we thought. And in that moment of confusion, we lift just a few centimetres off the, off the floor. I think perhaps it works the same way when an interviewee is deeply human on tape particularly when we get a glimpse of love or generosity or compassion or forgiveness or bravery or strength or honesty that we didn't expect and we can't quite comprehend. I think that's where something numinous sneaks in, something transcendent, a feeling close to awe. And I think that might be the ultimate magic, the thing that makes the carpet lift. Our job is to recognise it when we see it and not to get in the way. Not to edit out the pauses when an interviewee thinks or the almost imperceptible mouth noises when somebody smiles. Not to jump in with a bit of script if we can possibly help it. Just to let the intensity and the beauty and the poetry of the moment roll. Sally is a newcomer to day hospice. That's not her real name. But she likes the idea of being anonymous. It's more mysterious, we agree. When she was little, she used to sneak out to a farmer's field, climb on a horse and pretend to be Annie Oakley. She hates being called a housewife. She says she's a domestic engineer. I've got into the habit of waking up very early nowadays, about five o'clock, unfortunately, because I suppose the brain's a bit muddled up at the moment. So I just get up and put a little bit of washing on and say, I will take everything in my stride. And if I see anyone outside that's looking a bit down in the dumps, I'll have a little natter with them. And if I can get a little smile on their face, then I feel I've achieved something. Especially old folks, they love people to talk to them. And I'd always ask their advice if I see them in the garden. Folks like that because it makes them feel needed. Do you think you see people in a different way since your illness? Yes, very much so. Yes, I think people feel they need to open up. They want to open up, not need to, sorry, want to. And I think human beings are like little volcanoes. It's all bubbling up inside. And then just something triggers it off and out it all comes. And I find they'll be nattering away to you. So I often say, let's go and have a coffee. I'll get you a coffee and a sticky bun. This week's been a bit tough. I haven't been able to get out of bed very well because I've had very bad headaches and dizziness. But um, yes, I don't want to end up a recluse. No way. I work for Canterbury Cathedral in retail and it's so nice because we get people from all over the world come to visit Canterbury as you could probably well imagine it's nice talking to the foreign folks I don't speak any foreign languages and it makes them laugh when I'm trying to say good morning goodbye in their term of and they stand there laughing at me they think it's hilarious so again I've conquered something I've made someone laugh but um the moment I've had to give up work because of this aggressive thing. Tumour. <laughs> Does it feel very real to you? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Mm. I often, often get cross with it. I mean, yes, it will beat me, this tumour. It will. There's no two ways about it. But um, many times over the past years, I've thought to myself... I wonder what I'd do, how I'd react if I knew I'd got a terminal condition. So now I think I'm coping with it. Are you surprised by how you've reacted? Actually, yes, I am. Because I haven't shed a tear over this at all. If I laugh about something, to me, that is an achievement. But if I were to look in the mirror and end up in floods of tears, 
then it would have beaten me. Um, so that was from a documentary I made about a hospice called um, Little Volcanoes. And um, Sally died about five weeks later. But I think about her a lot. And um, one of her phrases has got stuck in my head. It's become one of my mantras. Um, I just get up and put a little bit of washing on and I say, I will take everything in my stride. And um, it's so much a part of me that if I'm having a bad day, you know, I can be in the middle of a really terrible edit and I'll be thinking to myself, I just need to get up and put a bit of washing on and I'll take everything in my stride. So she, interviewing her, has made me a tiny bit braver. And I kind of hope that actually that potential is there in the audio. Um, so almost as if it's sort of an emotional wave that piggybacks on the radio wave. That's almost the end, um, but I didn't want to send everybody out into the world gloomy uh, in such a gloomy week. Um, so I've got one last tiny clip to finish with. Uh, it's nothing fancy, but it always makes me levitate just a little bit when I hear it. It's the author Ray Bradbury um, talking about well, it's a manifesto for writers, but as usual, I kind of think we can nick it and have it as a manifesto for us as well. There's no use having a universe, is there? There's no use having a billion stars. There's no use having a planet Earth if there isn't someone here to see it. You are the audience. You are here to witness and celebrate. To witness and celebrate. That's your business. You put it in your work. You put it in your stories. Otherwise, get the hell out and, and get out of our way and let us live, huh? If you're going to be a cynic, if you're going to be a, a pessimist, there's no hope for you. Huh? I can't help you. You've got to help yourself. But we are here to be the audience to the miraculous. Huh? You're going to be alive once. You're never coming back. Think of that. You've got one chance to pay back. You owe, you owe to the universe. You know, you get the hell out of here and do that, and you're going to have a good life. What in hell was the question? Well <laughs> <laughs>
you know, with everything, all my tools other than myself, because my own interviews, when I go out in the field and do interviews, I just sound like a stammering moron because I'm trying to record and think what I'm going to say and listen and everything. And I just always end up cutting myself out because just because I sound like an idiot. Is there, other than just being a naturally charming person, is there a way <laughs> to, to improve the chances that you can get usable material from yourself in interviews when you go out? talk to people? Well, I, I mean, I would challenge the idea that, you know, I don't come back sounding like a stammering idiot because I listen to the tape at the end and think, oh, my God, who is that fool asking the questions? But, you know, I mean, it's amazing what you can do if you edit, 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 and, you know, yeah. you can take out a myriad of stammers. Um, but I suppose... I mean, I think a lot about the questions in advance, and um, I think I try and have sort of wild card questions as well as the standard stuff, so I think a lot about what I want to get. Um, so I sort of have them in my head, although when I get in the moment, I ditch the script and just I'm in the moment. But I wonder whether actually that act of, you know, sort of it's a rehearsal in a way. So it helps a little bit. But I mean, it's also, I think, there's an element of actually just forget your stammering. It's about them. So, you know, we can, we can sound as... We're there to sound stupid, because if that gets something amazing out of them, if that makes, actually makes them feel less inhibited, if they go out of the interview feeling a few centimetres taller, then, you know, we can look like idiots. Hi. Hi. Do you ever bring people into a studio for an interview? Is it always you're going to them? No, I do, so, I do sometimes. Um, I just made a series um, called Moving Pictures, which was about, it was sort of a, each, uh, each episode was a walk through a painting. And because actually I wanted, to, I wanted to make the painting world, so for that I interviewed everybody in studios and then dropped them into this imaginary created world. So I will sometimes, but yeah, I, do, I kind of like putting, taking people out of the studio and putting them somewhere else if I do that. I'm curious, I imagine that you gather a lot of tape, and I'm, I'm curious what your tape management looks like and if you transcribe it all yourself. <laughs> uh, tape management, what's that? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't tend to transcribe. Um, I, um, yeah, I mean, I genuinely don't really know what tape management is because it's just me with my desk. And so, you know, I gather it, I import it all into one big session, which I kind of organized in very color-coordinated uh, color ways. And um, I'll take notes, I'll sort of listen through everything and just have a sense of, okay, this, this, this. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I used to transcribe a lot at the beginning, but sort of the more confident I've got, the more I realize that actually when I walk out of the interview, I usually know exactly what I want. And you, you know, I have to actually get out of my own way because there's a really good chance my brain is the thickest bit of me and it will just start trying to convince me that I should use something else. So. Hi. In the beginning you said that under your point one to create a vivid world you showed your notebook and you said they were focus notes or maybe you said field notes but oh. can you tell me what they said and why you're not that no I'm just I'm just wondering why you're not saying the notes into your microphone like oh it's so cold and I look at the sun or is that what you're doing in the notebook um well it's a couple of different things one I'm actually absolutely terrible at improv and stand up so I started doing that at the beginning but I just get incredibly self-conscious and it you know I just my world becomes about what I'm saying. And, um, yeah, I suppose, actually, maybe I find it useful to actually be a writer at that point and actually go away and sit in a cafe and spend an hour just thinking about the tiny details. So I, we did um, a piece about Vietnam, and um, we went to a military grave, and um, we bought some fruit on the way. That was it. We bought some fruit, and the they were being taken as an offering. And the amount of thought that went into these sort of Vietnamese generals were just putting so much thought into the choosing of the fruit because it was, it was an, an offering and it was very important. And just in that one tiny moment, you got a sense of, you know, that was everything in one detail. And, you know, I couldn't stand there with a mic and just say, and now he's looking at the fruit. Whereas I could go off to a cafe and scribble that down afterwards. 
Hi, I was just curious um, both about distribution and whether or not this stuff is getting broadcast and where it is getting broadcast. And then when you are pitching or you're talking to a station that is going to air this, is your style and the style in which you produce it, is that included in your pitch to them? So instead of saying, I'm gonna go and cover the street market in Essex, and they say yes, and then you come back with this sort of unique style, is like, how do you talk about it beforehand? Um, I'm, I'm actually really lucky, and it's because of Tony Phillips, who um, is now in New York. Um, but he, he was just really good at the beginning. He, um, he was at the BBC, he was a commissioner, and um, he basically let me be me. And um, so I've always, I've sort of come in with that style, and they know what they're going to get. And I think actually it's become a selling point, so they know they're going to get a kind of that kind of program, um, which means gives me slight slight latitude in terms of getting away with subjects that other people might not. Um, but um, everything, almost everything goes out on BBC and um, sometimes on Unfictional um, and um, Third Coast. Um, yeah, but usually it's almost always BBC to start. again. Um, one of my takeaways from this weekend is everyone seems to be talking about structure, structure, structure. And um, I'm just trying to imagine you at your desk, totally immersed in this world. And I'm wondering how you figure out how you're going to do a story. Um, well, it's interesting because I think coming out of academia, I, there is a bit of me that does view structure as quite similar to putting an essay together, which is a terrible thing to admit in a conference of storytellers. But just that, I think it is useful to actually be, you know, that very logical, to take all the emotion out of it and to be able to logically think, what does the listener need to know now? And what is the, what is the, what's a good order for this information? And then to be able to take that and say, yeah, but what, what would make it a really good story? And to be able to monkey around with that. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's sort of two, two stages. Yeah, but I do, I like playing with structure very much, very much. I think that's, we don't do very much of that. I don't, I don't, I don't understand why. I made, I made a piece about grave digging and we just, the whole piece is just, we dig a grave and we talk. And, you know, it's kind of perfect sort of Aristotelian unity of time and place. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just more monkeying. <laughs> I Any think more? that might be it. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you.